So we've been in the book of Mark for about a year, and that's been really lovely. And we're about three quarters of the way through the book of Mark, and we've arrived at the point where the cross is really coming into view. And what we realized a few weeks ago was that if we don't think about it, then we're going to end up doing the Easter story at Christmas. Uh, and and it, it, for a moment I thought, oh, that would be lovely. That would be open up a whole new meaning for Christmas. And then I just thought about it a bit more and I thought, no, actually, that would be, you know, everyone else is like, oh, the baby Jesus. And we're like, oh, you know. Uh, so, um, so we're not going to do it. So what we're going to do is we're going to pause on Mark's gospel. We're going to come back to that after Christmas. And we're going to be in the book of Ephesians uh, uh, in, you know, uh, for the rest of this term, which I'm really, really excited about. Uh, and um, so we're in Ephesians chapter 1, and we're just going to read the first three sentences of Ephesians chapter 1, which is our text this morning. So, comes up on the screen. Just to let you know, uh, this is a letter, and uh, 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, the way they wrote letters was they started with who they're from, then they said who they're to, and then they did a kind of a greeting, and those are the three sentences that we have today. So it's from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and because it's so short let's just read it again uh, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus the faithful in Christ Jesus grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ Amen. So if we haven't known each other for very long, you maybe don't know, but I've got a twin brother. And uh, actually, to be honest, it is a bit of a freak show. Like, I'd, I'd put a picture on the screen of what he looks like, but to be honest, this is it. This is what he looks like. He just looks exactly like me. And whenever we go out and hang out places, um, you know, we, we, we feel like we're some kind of exhibit in a zoo. And people are kind of, honestly, people, uh, we were on the tube once. Uh, one guy was, like, taking a picture with his phone, like, like we wouldn't notice. Another girl, she did a selfie. Like, look at these two weirdos uh, and um, uh, sometimes we've thought maybe that's the answer to the one chuck in many places problem you know we could just this is like human cloning rather than video link technology but we're not going to do that so if ever you meet me I promise you it's me uh, unless it's him uh, but the truth is that my, my parents didn't know that they were having twins until my brother was born and uh, just imagine it for a moment uh, you know you and your spouse are getting the nursery ready, you've painted the walls, you've got the cot, you've assembled it, you know, you've got the mattress all there, you've, you've ironed the baby grows, you've, you've just got everything all ready, you've got the teddy bear sat there already, and then there's the trauma of the, the birth experience, which I, I always say for the blokes, it's, it's traumatic for you as well, I'm just affirming you in your trauma as well, because no one ever likes to talk about that. I understand it's, you know, a bit of an ordeal for the girl as well, but anyway, so... <laughs> So you get past that bit, and then um, my brother was born, and then they said, hang on a minute, there's still a baby in there. 
and then six minutes later, I was born. Uh, so I like to think of myself as being like one step down from the Immaculate Conception. You know, I'm kind of like, uh, you know, a miracle, a miracle child just walking around. Uh, it's just a wonder. But um, that's quite a great story. And I promise it's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. And so when I was a kid growing up, I heard that story a lot. You know, all of my parents' friends wanted to hear it. Uh, Tell us that story again about how you didn't know you were having twins until one of them was born. And so it just happened all the time. And I became known in my family as my mum's little surprise. So all the time, oh, he's my little surprise. He's my little surprise. Now, I understand that for lots of people growing up, their parents communicate to them in all kinds of ways. You weren't wanted. Um... Uh, or, or that you weren't welcome, or, or, you know, we wish we hadn't had you. And I understand that, and that's horrible, and many people live with the trauma of that into their adult years. That is not my experience. You know, I received a welcome when I was born, and my parents loved me, and it was a very secure and loving family home. And yet, somehow, I grew up in the wiring of my soul, knowing that I, I hadn't been planned for. There was no plan for me. And and I I don't know whether I could have articulated what that really meant, uh, but I just know that in in a million different ways, somehow in the roots of my sense of who I was, my personality, I understood. uh, There was no plan for me. I wasn't anticipated. And... So fast forward 25 years, and I was speaking at a youth, a youth camp, and uh, I was in the lunch queue with, uh, 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 standing next to one of the other speakers who I hadn't really met before, and we were just chatting away. Now, if you know me at all, you might know that in the lunch queue, the, the only thing I'm thinking about is lunch, right? That's, that's, that's it. There's no other thought in my head. Uh, but anyway, we're just chatting away, and we're speaking about different things, and... Uh, he just started to, to prophesy into my life. And he said, oh, you're a bit like a Jeremiah, aren't you? I said, I'm not entirely sure what you mean. He said, I'll go and get a Bible. So I got a Bible, and he said, just read aloud Jeremiah chapter 1. And to this day, it was the most powerful experience of the presence of God, of the, of the power of the Holy Spirit that I've ever had. I wasn't sure whether I'd get through to the end of Jeremiah chapter 1 without dying it felt like my whole body was on fire as I read out words like this before I formed you in the womb I knew you before you were born I set you apart I appointed you it goes on to say I put words in your mouth today I appoint you to build and to plant and as I read out those words, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, my parents had no idea that I was coming, but before I was born, my Father in heaven knew me. Before my parents had any idea that I even existed, he'd already appointed me. And it was such a powerful thing. And I tell that story really to make this point, that sometimes it's really uh, the delight of the Lord to perform an intervention in our lives by his word and by his spirit and to speak directly into our sense of who we really are. 
It's one of the reasons why we're going to be going through the book of Ephesians or the letter to the Ephesians over the next few months because there's so much in there that speaks to our sense of who we really are. And, and our, our hope, our dream for this series is that what will happen is not so much that we all leave the room either here or in one of the other locations uh, with a sense of having had a hug from God. You know, although that would be lovely, a kind of a warm, fuzzy moment. But more like for many of us, like God grabs us by the shoulders and gives us a good shake or like takes a, a cricket bat to the head or something. You know, like there's, there's these real moments where God says to us by his word and by his spirit, you've believed lies about yourself your entire life and they're utterly untrue. Or you are so much more than you believe you are. Or your whole sense of who you are in God is utterly distorted. And so it's going to be a really, really exciting journey. And uh, I'm really looking forward to it. And even in these very first few sentences, what Paul is in a sense doing is kind of sending some shots over the bow to say, here's some of the big themes that we're going to cover over the next uh, chunks of the letter. But there are loads of little words, little phrases that are packed with meaning for us. And so we're going to look at those today. There are five lessons that we're going to learn from this. Actually, the very first sentence. And the first one is this, we are who God says we are. That's who we really are. He's actually the only independent uh, perspective in the entire universe. He's utterly objective and he's utterly full of truth. And who he says we are really is who we are. Just listen to how Paul describes his own sense of identity and purpose. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. By the will of God, that's who he is. So if we were to ask the question, who defines his sense of self? Who, who, who is it who's shaping his sense of who he is and what he's for? It's God. God is telling him who he is. Taryn and I met a young woman recently. She's maybe in her early 30s. And um, she had her entire sort of teenage years dreamt of becoming a doctor. And so uh, all through her teenage years, her friends are out studying and all of that, are out partying. She's studying. She's in the book. She's got her head down, just working really, really hard. And then she goes off to medical school and she graduates near the top of her class. Just an astonishing achievement. Uh, all of the stuff that she, you know, uh, different degrees and, and uh, attainment that she'd achieved. And then she went into her first area of specialization. She was there for three years and to her surprise, it actually didn't really work out. It wasn't quite what she'd hoped it would be. And so she switched and she went to another field of medicine and she did that for a couple of years and still didn't really feel like her. And so she did another couple of years in another thing and then she just had this moment where she realized three things. The first one was actually God had never asked her to be a doctor. Second realization was actually she had never deep down wanted to be a doctor. Third truth was, she was living her mother's dream for her life. Wow. It's pretty extreme, but nearly all of us, uh, our sense of who we are is so shaped by other people's perspectives, what they say and speak into our lives, and who they say that we are. Um, 
and they use words often with the best of intentions you know not always but often out of love they'll say things to us like you're not very fill in the blank you know you're not very pretty or you're not very bright or you're not very sporty, or you're not very coordinated. And, and what they're trying to do is they're trying to manage our expectations for our lives and help us to realise that, you know, actually there are other people who are more gifted in particular areas, or whatever it is. But actually what they're doing when they say things like that is they're limiting our potential. And they're boxing in what's possible. You're not very. Or perhaps they say, you're too. You're too emotional. You're too awkward. You're too harsh. You're too lazy. Or maybe they'll say things like, you'll never be the sharpest tool in the box. Or you'll never be the sporty type. Or maybe they'll say things like, you always, you always overdo it. You always get in the way. And so actually over the course of our lives, in a million different occasions, what's actually happening is that our sense of who we really are becomes who they say we are. And our, even in our inmost thoughts, even in, it, when no one else is around, our sense of who we are becomes sort of everyone else's imposed collage of their perspectives of who we really are. And God's invitation to each one of us today is to choose to become who God says we are. Not to have our sense of self shaped by the will of the people, but to have our sense of self formed by the will of God. Paul, an apostle, by the will of God. We are who God says we are. That's the first thing. Second thing is this. God's vision for our lives is bigger than ours. He has much bigger dreams than we do. Uh, I want you to imagine for a moment that somebody comes to our church today, perhaps they come into Guilt Park or they've come into Ellen or Kingswells or Inverurie and um, they walk into the room and immediately what you notice about them is they're quite well spoken, they're quite well dressed, they've clearly been well educated and they're quite impressive uh, to begin with. But then after a while you're kind of chatting to them in the turny roundy bit and you realise that they're holding their cards very close to their chest and they're not really giving anything away about who they are. And so I know that there are loads of people in our church who would immediately think, I'm going to take that guy out for a drink and find out who he really is. I know that, for example, Brian in Ellen, that is exactly what Brian would do. And he'd take, he'd take uh, this chat for a drink and they'd sit down together and in his kind of lovely Glaswegian soft way, Brian would just say, so tell us your story, what's the deal, what's going on? And he says, well, actually, I've, uh, you know, I love Jesus. I've not been a Christian very long, but he's utterly changed my life. And Brian's like, mm, yeah, mm, and? And then he says, well, the thing is, before I became a Christian, what I used to do was I was kind of in charge of a gang. And we would sort of go and knock on people's doors in the middle of the night, bust their doors down, drag Christians out by the hair, take them out into the street, throw them into the middle of the street. And then I would hold people's coats while other people just took up rocks and stones and bricks and stuff like that and just lobbed them uh, at these 
Christians who were lying terrified in the street and eventually they would become unconscious uh, and, uh, but the people would keep throwing stones until they died of like blunt force trauma to the head or you know uh, some kind of internal bleeding and I would just you know we would just celebrate after that Brian's just sipping his pipe but awkward silence and then the guy says, I've noticed that in City Church, you really like to have you know, everyone who's part of the family rolling up their sleeves and getting involved. So which area of ministry in the church would you like me to serve in? I wonder how you would answer that question. I think I'd answer the question like, well, to be honest, you could take up the offering for a start. Um, Paul knows exactly, this is, that's Paul's story by the way, the person who wrote this letter, that's his story, that's who he was, he had lived a life that was punctuated by violence and he had lived that life and he knew exactly who he was and in fact you see in 1 Timothy chapter 1 he says, I once was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. He said, I am the worst of sinners. He knew exactly who he was. Our sense of who this guy is might be, um, well, we're not going to let you do our kids' ministry. Uh, and, uh, you know, um, how about you go and stand out on the new dual carriageway with a high-vis vest on and just welcome people to church from the middle of the dual carriageway? I don't know. We'd think of something to put him. But God's sense of who he was was, an apostle by the will of God. It's actually an astonishing thing. And really what that word is to us today is an invitation to believe that God's dream for our lives is utterly unaffected by our past, by our shame, by whatever sin we have, uh, has become our story. God says, I have a different dream for your life that has nothing to do with that. His vision for our lives is so much bigger, so much more expansive. So we need to hear his commissioning and his call to us today. That's number two. Number three, we are God's treasured possession. Now, to be honest, if you're making notes, and I can see that some people are, you get a special gold star, just cross out the word treasure, because that isn't really the point. We are God, I just put that in to make things sound nicer, but actually I shouldn't have done. The truth is, we are God's possession. We belong to God. We, he owns us. You know, if there are any title deeds to you, then he has them in his safe. You belong to him. We had a house guest last week. She's a, a young woman. She's a vineyard pastor, church planter from Cambridge. And she stayed with us for a few days. And uh, we had her in our, our uh, spare room. And what you need to know about our spare room is it's been sort of manicured to within an inch of its life by Taryn, who's like the kind of interior designer, you know, kind of. She just likes, so, like, she, we've bought furniture on Gumtree and I've painted it all up to match. And, she, you know, there's kind of like... Um, like floral, uh, I'm out of my depth here, Flor floral bed linen and there's a picture of a dove that represents the Holy Spirit above the bed and you know like it's just it's just kind of a nice thing. Just imagine we get home from work one day, Lauren's staying with us and um, she, she's like wearing overalls and she's splattered with paint and she's got a paintbrush in her hand and she's got a roller in her other hand and she's like oh hi Chuck and Taryn, I hope you don't mind, off-white wasn't really my colour. 
And so I've gone for more like blackcurrant. Oh, right. And, and then she's like, yeah, and floral doesn't really do it for me. I've got a duvet that's it's got cats on it. You know, and, and I, I, I didn't really like the dove picture, so I've got puppies. I've got pictures of puppies all around the walls. We would be like, what the heck do you think you're doing? It's not your house. And of course, the point is, this ain't my house. I don't belong to me. I don't have the title deeds. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? And then he goes on to say, You are not your own. You were bought at a price. And this truth is absolutely critical to our redeemed, restored, renewed sense of our own identity. We have to understand that we don't belong to us, that we belong to somebody else. It's especially interesting, this truth, when you understand who Paul is writing to. Um, actually, you know, it says, the, uh, to God's holy people in Ephesus, that's what it says in our text, but if you follow down, actually, there's a, or there's a little A in my Bible next to Ephesus, and then you follow that little A down to the bottom, and the little A says, some early manuscripts do not have in Ephesus. And, and there's a whole sort of science into trying to get the most accurate version of the Bible that we possibly can. And the oldest manuscripts are clearly the most original ones, and those ones don't have in Ephesus in them. And, and so scholars are trying to figure out what is the deal with that. And their sense is that originally the letter to, to the Ephesians was actually a letter that was written to a group of churches that started in Ephesus and ended in Colossae. And there's a road that goes between those two, and it's to a bunch of churches along the way, uh, one of them being Laodicea. So probably it's a letter that was written at the very least to the Ephesian church and the Laodicean church. What do we know about those two places? Well, Ephesus was massive. Ephesus had a population of about a third of a million people, which uh, made it the second largest city in the world at that time. And, uh, uh, you know, they knew how to splash the cash. Right? So, so one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was the, the uh, temple to the goddess Artemis. That was in Ephesus. You would have seen it for miles around. There was an enormous amphitheater, which actually you can still go and visit today. Hands up if you've been to the amphitheater at Ephesus. Yeah, some people. Anyone in the sites? I can't see you, but you're putting your hands up. How silly do you feel now? So... Uh, Seated comfortably, 25,000 people. Just an absolutely massive uh, thing to see. And man, were they proud of what they'd achieved. In Laodicea, Laodicea was also an incredibly wealthy place. It was along a major trade route. In AD 60, an earthquake destroyed Laodicea. And um, the Roman Emperor Nero at that time said, Hey, do you want some help? putting Laodicea back together and they said no we can manage thank you that's their pride and also they, they didn't have any fresh water themselves and so they pumped it in along uh, big long pipeways from other places around and about uh, and uh, which was really impressive also made the water really lukewarm which is why uh, when God says to the church in Laodicea in uh, the book of Revelation, I, uh, I wish you were either hot nor cold, but you're just lukewarm. He was, he was using an image that they fully understood. They were drinking lukewarm water every day. 
They specialized in distinctive cloths of uh, glossy black wool and medicine, especially medicine for the eyes. So what we need to understand about these two places is they are um, centers to the self. You know, everyone who lived there is like, hey, we are really, really good at being self-sustaining. They were in complete control of their destinies. They were centers of worship for self-reliance, self-determination, self-dependence, self-esteem. And here we are right at the very start of the letter, the very first sentence. And Paul says, to God's holy people. In other words, everyone else who's living around and about you might believe that they are in complete control of their destinies, but you, faithful believers, are not your own. You don't belong to you. And I say all of that to say this. Isn't it amazing how often we make sometimes really big decisions without any reference to the holder of the title deeds? We are God's possession. And we're treasured as well. We're just... That's why I put that in. So, we are God's treasured possession. Number four, we are holy and faithful in Christ Jesus. To God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. So, the autumn is a kind of a strange time for churches because what happens is people look for a new church. And there'll be people here in this room today, you're looking for a new church. You've moved into the city for work or to study or whatever, you're looking for a new church. And there'll be people at all of our other sites in a similar position. Um, and that's normal and that's, that's totally legitimate. What you're doing is really, really important. You need to find a good church, a church that feels like home for you. But the news is that even though you're looking for a perfect church, church, the perfect church does not exist. In fact, even if it did, as soon as you joined it, you'd ruin it. No offence. The truth is that there is no such thing as the perfect church. And what it looks like initially, when you first read this sentence, it looks like Paul is writing to the world's only ever perfect church. He says to the holy people in Ephesus, to the faithful in Christ Jesus, and they must have thought... You know, as, there, as, the, as somebody's come into their city and he's reading it aloud, they must have been like, oh, Paul thinks so much of us. That's so lovely. He thinks that we're holy. Oh, bless him. We think he's holy too, you know. Oh, he thinks we're faithful. Oh, we have been faithful. We, he's right, we have been. And, and actually the truth is, that if you'd gone to Ephesus, it would have been exactly the same as every other church you've ever been to. You know, there's a, there's a guy on the fourth row who's fallen asleep every service for the last 30 years or you know obviously there's no one here who's doing that and nobody in the site there's just the other ones you know like Lawrence Kirk terrible all asleep you're my favorite uh, you know and, and, there, and there's there's like in every church you've ever been to there's somebody who serves on the tea and coffee team who like barks at people and throws coffee in you know it's like somehow haven't figured out it's supposed to be about welcome obviously that doesn't happen here on any other sites but occasionally it might happen in you know the uh, one in Stonehaven but we don't just don't tell them I said that and there'll be a group of people in every church who just like to share things for prayer, you know, highly confidential things that people would be horrified if they knew was being talked about. You know, it looks a bit more like gossip to everyone else, but obviously it doesn't happen here. But Ephesus is just like any other church. 
and yet he's able to say, you're holy and faithful. How is he able to say that? Well, of course, it has absolutely nothing to do with them and how they've lived their lives and everything to do with one man who died on a hill just outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. To God's holy people, to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Those three words explain everything to us that we need to know. And actually he's going to come back to that again and again and again throughout this letter. We need to understand who we really are. And there's an invitation this morning, and that invitation will come again and again from the Lord to say, reconsider who you are before God. You've been living with a sense of shame and guilt hanging around your necks for the whole of your lives. You need to understand that in God's sight you are holy and faithful. Because your sin and your shame was given to Jesus 2,000 years ago and today as you sit in this room or in one of the other rooms, his righteousness, his faithfulness, his holiness has been credited to your account. We're holy and faithful in Christ Jesus. We need to make the shift. And number five, and I'll finish with this, we belong to a people. Still in verse one, to God's holy people in Ephesus. Holy people, not holy person. And actually, the language that he's using is language that um, is supposed to remind us of the chosen people of Israel throughout the Old Testament. These are people who have been rescued as a people, as a family. And yet so often, when, you know, the truth is that there are loads and loads of bits of the Bible. In fact, most of the Bible is written to people rather than person. Right? Most of it is written to groups of people. And certainly this letter, as I said earlier on, is written to more than one church. And the idea is some guy, probably Tychicus, comes along. He brings, hey guys, I've got a letter from the Apostle Paul. And they're like, wow, that's amazing. So they all gather around and Tychicus reads it aloud to them and they all listen to it together. It's, it's, it's written to a group, to a family. And yet what we do so often, because we live in the individualized, um, you know, hyper-personal Western world, what we do is we do the work of a translator in our own heads without even realizing it, and we translate plural into singular and we, we into me. And we make it all about me. And so we need to understand that when uh, Paul is writing to the Ephesian church, he's saying to them, you're God's holy people. And actually, we only find out who we really are within the context of family, within relationships, within community. We only find out when we rub each other up the wrong way, we find out who we really are. When we hang out with one another, get to know each other really well, and people call out the destiny that is within us, bring encouragement to us, here's what I see in you, we find out who we are. That's why it's utter nonsense for people who, when they say, oh, I'm, um, I'm a Christian, but I don't really see the need for church. Well, they'll never find out who they really are. We have an older man in one of our sites, I'll call him Bob, that's not his real name, but Bob has been around our church for a long time. And um, Bob, uh, I was going to say he's been a drinker for a long time, but actually what he's been doing is he's been living with pain for a long time. And he's been medicating his pain with alcohol for, for most of that time. 
and so that's got him into all kinds of difficulty and he's had a really really tough life but as he joined our church, as you would expect, he was kind of enveloped into the family. He, he, he came to belong. And also he came to belong to God as well. And he surrendered his life to Jesus. And, and uh, you know, I'd love to say that his journey has been one of sobriety from that point on. But of course that isn't the case. But I'll never forget when he was baptised and he stood right where I'm standing now and as he read out his story and talked about who he was and what had happened, he said this, he said, before now, nowhere in my life have people looked me in the eye and shaken me by the hand. His whole sense of identity was utterly changed by belonging. And of course, for many of us, we're now thinking, well, of course somebody like Bob needs a family like that. Of course they do. Of course. You know, and of, how redemptive, how restoring for Bob. And, and yet for many of us, we think, well, of course I'm, I don't have those kind of issues, so I don't really need the family. And honestly, I think there's an invitation to a whole bunch of people in our church right now who have been on the, on the edge, Sometimes, some of you for years, some of you for more than a decade. And the invitation is, actually, belonging to the family is not optional for you, as it isn't optional for any of us. And you'll find out your true identity in God when you make a decision to belong. Why don't we stand?